Hello and welcome. This is the uh, Mozilla Security Bytes podcast. Uh, I'm Julien Veillant. And for this first episode, we thought we'll kick it off with one of the most sophisticated and yet least implemented security control on the internet, and that is content security policy. And to talk about CSP today, we have uh, two of the engineers who work on it in Firefox, Christoph Kirschbaumer. Hello, Christoph. Hey, hello. And Frederick Brown. Hello, Frederick. Hi. And for the web dev side, we have uh, Dylan Hardison, who uh, has been working on implementing CSP on boxilla.mozilla.org. Hello, Dylan. Hello. So CSP is a pretty important topic for us at Mozilla, and we've been pushing hard to get all of our uh, sites to implement it because it really, really helps us mitigate a lot of the vulnerabilities we receive in, in, in bug bounty reports. Um, but I thought as a way to start this podcast, it would be interesting to go back a little bit to the origins of CSP and, and why it's needed and why we think it's important. So uh, maybe, Christoph, you can uh, uh, get us started here. Yeah, most certainly. Well, let me define what CSP is. So CSP is a computer security mechanism that allows websites to whitelist where trusted resources can be loaded from. So, for example, CSP provides a mechanism to define where JavaScript can be loaded from with the intent to stop cross-site scripting. Over time, the Web Application Security Group added more and more directives to define where images, styles, fonts, and whatnot can be loaded from. So, for example, in contrast to the same origin policy, uh, the content security policy is opt-in. And that means uh, the same origin policy will basically break your website if you don't obey the rules. But a CSP, as I said, is opt-in. So if it breaks your site, probably you're not going to adopt it. So since adoption of CSP was slow in the beginning, uh, the, the web application group added the keyword unsafe inline, which basically uh, allowed websites to start using CSP in a backwards compatible way. So unsafe inline basically allows all inline scripts to run. And the problem here is that it not only allows uh, regular page scripts from uh, the page to run, but also uh, attacker injected scripts. So that is basically the state, in my opinion, why adoption of CSP is still slow, because it starts breaking your web page. And if it breaks your web page, probably some developers will rather not use it instead of facing uh, a half-broken web page. Yeah, I have the number in front of me that April uh, measured back in uh, in November of last year through the, the Mozilla Observatory. And, uh, and actually, she has two numbers from April 2016 and October 2016. And the adoption was, I think she was looking at good quality CSP and at 0.005% and 0.008%. So the, the, the plus side is between April and October, there is a plus 60% <laughs> increase. The, the, the downside of it, of course, is that it's a very, very small number of sites. We've seen it in, in, an, in a number of websites, and I think one of the first where we really focused on was uh, addons.mozilla.org, and it was somewhat complicated to implement. So I think what's important to mention here is that it's not really the adoption of all sites on the web page, but high uh, frequency pages or high traffic web pages that use CSP are way more important uh, than pages like, for example, my web page. If that uses CSP, only my mom and some other folks visit that page. It's not as important, right? I think your mom would disagree. <laughs> <laughs> so why do we think it's so difficult to implement CSP? I mean, obviously, it would be preferable if you had a web framework 
directly implement it on your page and directly get you started with a safe default, right? That's what a lot of people talk about. It gets started from a secure state, but that hasn't been the case. Is it because CSP doesn't allow it or is it simply because we haven't done it? I think the main problem is that the architecture that CSP mandates is very much incompatible with how almost all websites are built these days or have been built in the past. First of all, almost every website uses some sort of inline script. I've done some measurements in, um, I think it's a few years ago by now. And um, the thing is, when you look at websites, you al almost always find a piece of inline script. And that means they would have to re-architecture the website. In the worst case, rewrite big parts of it. In the best case, just like move a few files. And changing things only for security is always harder. If there were like more benefits, performance or whatever, it might be easier. But I think the stats I've been running was like over 95% of all websites used inline JavaScript. And that means you have to rewrite your web page or use CSP and not get the security benefit. So I think that makes it most that that makes it hard. So yes, I agree with Freddie, and I think I like the analogy of basically using airbags in cars. So in the beginning, airbags were really it took us a while to basically adopt airbags in cars, but now we have airbags on the left side, on the right side, in the front, like everywhere. And then if we look at new uh, web startups, they basically architecture their websites with CSP in mind. So I agree it's really hard to basically add CSP to an already established web page. But if you start from scratch, it's way easier if you have CSP in mind. That's an interesting uh, way to think about it. I think w what's interesting about CSP is it is an airbag, really. I mean, it's once you're already crashed, <laughs> You know, that's what might save you. But what I like about this analogy is you actually, something happened to you, like you crashed. Uh, your website has a flaw in it and CSP is only here to help you after you've already made that mistake or this vulnerability has been deployed in your code. And so we, we know that CSP is, is not going to fix the root cause. Uh, it's going to help you prevent the damages or reduce the damages. It makes it a little difficult sometimes to, to, to recommend CSP when you would really want the developers to just fix the root cause, you know, or escape content or something like that. Um, but that's not always possible. I mean, we've seen it in, in, in Bugzilla. I think, if I recall this correctly, Dylan, one of the cutest cross-site scripting we've had recently, was it in uh, git commit messages? Uh, no, there was something in, uh, in, in bug comments. I forget which one it was. Bug comments formatting git commit messages was one. That was that was so, a really painful one. So how did that work again? So we format uh, links that look like the output of git commit messages, like uh, where it says two, and then a repository, and then it's a, a range of hashes. Uh, and then that range of hashes, we just said, I don't even think we checked if they were hex. We just said anything that's not a space, which meant that anything that's not a space got captured. And then that anything that's not a space gets re-echoed to the page. And there you go. That was a nice one. <laughs> that one. That was a bug bounty report, if I remember correctly. Um, uh, yes, I, th I yes, I think it was. Yeah. So I've I've been I've been looking at um, at the bug bounty report we've had for 2016, and and it's it's actually an interesting uh, graph because you have so we get a lot of them, right? We get many different types of of bug bounty reports on hundreds of sites. 
and you get cross-site request forgery, you get authentication backpass, you get the session, session reuse, all sorts of things. And they're all within, you know, the same kind of rough number, like you, you get about one of those every month or every other month. And then there's cross-site scripting attacks. <laughs> and that, that list goes all the way to the right of the graph and it's literally 30 times higher than any other type of attacks. Like XSS is just, and we see all types of XSS. I like the Bugzilla one because it was really creative. Like there's really no way when you're coding that that you can really catch it. A another one uh, that I like is uh, cross-site scripting injection in SVG images because that, that's also a popular type. And, and that's really where you can't really tell developers, you know, make sure that you need to escape your SVG images when you, <laughs> that doesn't work, right? Or you have to serve them through a separate domain. So that's where CSP is, I think, interesting. So I think worth adding here is that CSP is not only about cross-site script prevention. So what I've heard recently or even more often from the web uh, from web developers is that they rather refer to it as their content architecture policy and basically what big companies do is they apply a somehow strict csp making sure that thousands of developers cannot just pull in random javascript libraries without a security uh, without the security review from the security team and this is in my opinion a really important part of csp because if you think about it, pulling in a library that does something where you have no idea under the hood, it's just pulled in at runtime in your browser or in the user's browser and no one really knows what it's doing, right? It's kind of that analogy works here as well. And that is, I think it's um, Kentworth Trusting Trust. Is that the paper? It's basically you cannot really trust your compiler, what the compiler is doing, and that it's not introducing any backdoors. And the same problem, in my opinion, happens here. So CSP is doing a really good job in, in preventing those kind of things, in my opinion. In the case of Bugzilla, we actually have never allowed external, uh, external scripts or CSS. So if someone wants to add some feature or whatever, they cannot use a CDN to source jQuery or or anything that's like always been forbidden and with content security policy we can make that so that the browser enforces that which is quite nice well that's that's probably an exception though because if i uh, i was just reading a, a discussion we've been having for the last couple of years on the google tag manager and and i think still today people who import the the, the gtm script maybe that has changed but they've had to enable unsafe evolve for that Google Tag Manager script to work. So essentially what you're saying is that I have a CSP on my site, but anything that runs on analytics.google.com or anything is, is allowed to execute any random JavaScript. Um, and and that's, uh, that's not specific to, to Google, of course. I mean, you see it with a number of, of analytics scripts, uh, whether they come from you know, many, many of those analytic providers. And a lot of the CSPs out there they are present, and if you just look at the header, you'll find it on a number of websites, but a lot of them don't do much because it's actually very complex to lock it down. So it's not something that a lot of uh, organizations can simply just lock down. You have to work on it and make choices. And the, the other way I like to think about it, I mean, there is no silver bullet in security in general, right? We need several lines of defense. And in my opinion, CSP is, is one of them. 
right? We, we need other security mechanisms as well, but we need CSP. And in my opinion, if your web page has a cross-site scripting vulnerability, CSP is the best way to mitigate that risk. But it's also the hardest one, right? There are many other things you can do to improve your website in a more easy way without going through hoops here and there. I mean, if you're concerned about injection attacks, then CSP is the best thing. But if you want something that's like a quick bang for the buck, then you can look at a lot of other things, like, for example, the X-Frame Options Header, which can defend against a lot of attacks, not only click-checking, but as I've written in a white paper a few years ago with uh, Mario Heidrich called X-Frame Options, not only about click-checking, is that there are a lot of attacks tied into cross-site scripting filters in, in browsers that can be used for evil and um, Internet Explorer compatibility modes and, and the backwards compatibility that can be used to like make websites behave weird if you put them in a frame as an attacker. Just wanted to point that out. Is it still a relevant header now that you can essentially do the same thing inside of your CSP, right? The same thing, X frame option uh, supportive, you have been moved to CSP. But I guess if you support all the browsers, you still want that header. But if you're only focused on the modern ones, you can just do the CSP, right? Yeah, it's, it is supported in um, CSP. And I think uh, it's slightly different in CSP because CSP can go through the whole ancestor chain of frames in case of something framing that is framing a document that is then framing a document. I think cross um, XFO, um, X-Frame Options only checks the parent document. So if you have a web page that frames something and then you nest things because you find a web page on the vulnerable web page that can frame something that you define, um, then you can somehow bypass that. So the CSP protection is a bit better, but the question is, of course, browser support, right? Depending on what browsers you have to support and whether you have to support legacy browsers, it really makes sense to use both. There's no like cost tied with um, just adding both headers, really. Related to, not related to X-Frame options, but my other favorite similar security mechanism is uh, HTTP-only cookies. So when we've had uh, JavaScript injection attacks in Bugzilla, Luckily, people haven't been able to steal login cookies. They've been only able to steal short-lived uh, CSRF tokens. So I quite like the HTTP-only cookies as a line in the sand of separating client-side uh, information from you know, JavaScript-accessible information from, uh, from attack. I quite like HTTP-only cookies because I even when uh, Everything else prior to CSP has failed, you don't end up leaking people's login credentials that could be then captured and reused. I mean, that relates to an interesting discussion I had yesterday with the developers of, of one of our services. And we had a bug bounty report of uh, an XSS on an API endpoint. So it's not even a site that serves web pages. Uh, but the, the XSS, the reflected XSS, essentially injected JavaScript in one of the query string parameter, and it was reflected on the page and could uh, be used to run the script inside of the API response body because it didn't have a content type. So the browser was essentially treating it as HTML. And the, the developer pinged me and asked, this is an API endpoint. Essentially, no one's ever going to visit it. What are the risks of this being exploited and essentially messing up with users? And the interesting thing about this is that it's not about that particular API endpoint. 
The fact that this API endpoint is on the mozilla.org domain means that it can be used to steal cookies from everything else on the mozilla.org domain. Uh, so you end up hosting everything as subdomains of, of your company domain. And if one of these sites is vulnerable to XSS, then all of the cookies on that domain are vulnerable. And that's, I think, a pretty strong argument for forcing CSP everywhere that you never know, even if your most secure sites implemented, that someone isn't going to have the blog that they, they want to host for their mother that's going to put the entire domain at risk uh, in a corner of the infrastructure. So this is slightly off topic, but it's very another type of the same vulnerability is if you have an API that's like even a public facing API that produces a CSV file, if you're not careful, a CSV file can be considered valid JavaScript and executed by a browser and it will be executed in the domain context of wherever it's hosted from. Um, we actually, Bugzilla actually produces invalid CSV files that are intentionally invalid so they cannot be evaluated as JavaScript because that's the only way to prevent that from happening. And that is, <laughs> that is both clever and very sad. <laughs> so actually, um, Dylan, you've been working a bunch on, on implementing CSP on all of bugzilla.mozilla.org. And, um, and I thought that was an interesting maybe discussion to have to discuss like is CSP2 and maybe some of the features of the upcoming CSP3 uh, important to actually enabling it on bugzilla.org. And I think you mentioned something about CSP1 being a non-starter. Yes. So yeah, CSP1, if I'm, if I'm correct in understanding this, didn't support the nonce or hash uh, directives. So with that, we would have had to rewrite all of the templates to not use inline JavaScript, which was originally scoped as the task we we're going to do. Okay, we're going to remove all inline JavaScript. This will only take many, many months of, of just doing that and then testing everything to make sure that we haven't broken anything. But then I was I read the CSP2 spec and I see this nonce attribute and I'm like, well, okay, so with the nonce attribute, you can use that on script tags. I presumably, uh, is it does it apply? I haven't had to use it, but I presume that you can use it on styles as well, inline CSS styles. So we specify a nonce attribute and then we go and add that to all the script tags and then those can run. This only reduced the amount of things that we have to actually do because while you can do, there's a hash thing too. So if you have, there's two places where you can have JavaScript. Uh, from my understanding, you can have them inline in the script tag, but you can also have them on event handlers uh, like on click, uh, on blur, and so on, on the DOM elements representing things. And you can then also have them as a JavaScript colon link. And we also have all of those. Those I think I could have solved with uh, by hashing them, but instead I just removed all of those smaller pieces of JavaScript and did them the right way with hooks being in file, uh, callback routines being in separate files and uh, doing, you know, DOM manipulation, searching to add those event handlers the right way without having to uh, too much more. But because the, those are small, those are small snippets of JavaScript, it's very easy to look at those and translate that into a more elegant code. But the giant blocks of possibly partially generated JavaScript that you have in inline script tags would have been completely impossible to do without the nonce attribute, uh, nonce directive. Yeah, Christoph, could you uh, maybe go back to how the nonce mechanism works? Uh... So basically, in a script source directive, you can whitelist external domains or origins, or you can also define, like as Dylan said, hashes or nonces. 
So a cryptographic nonce, and this is really important, that it should only be used once, right? Uh, and not do not use a static nonce because then the attacker could observe that nonce and next time he injects a script, he just serves it with, with that nonce attribute. It's important to mention that within script source, like what I said earlier, we have unsafe inline, which allows all unsafe inline script to run. But if a nonce is defined, then the unsafe inline keyword is ignored. And this is really important to mention, right? Uh, because to add CSP in a backward compatible way, or also some browsers, for example, do not uh, support CSP2 at the time, right? So if you then have a nonce with your script, then they would all be blocked if you don't add unsafe inline. So I think that is enough from a, a technical point of view. Yes, exactly. We, we specify unsafe inline uh, as well. Uh, another implementation point that I think we partially covered is that it's not about, you said that you it's not about securing every page, but high trafficked ones. Uh, that's also an approach that we've used. So any day now, actually it's been R plus, so we're going to have CSP turned on on two pages on the index, which is so that we can game the Mozilla Observatory and get an A minus rating, but two on the new Showbug UI, because the Showbug UI is literally the thing on their most active development right now because it's new. It's we've been you know working on this for a while. It's actually somewhat usable uh, in comparison to the old one, which just was very very difficult to use unless you were an expert user. Anyway, so we're constantly making changes to that, right? And we're accepting patches to that. We have uh, tooling that tries to detect if we've done if we've made a mistake and not escape something, but that tooling can fail and has failed in the past. So in addition to that, we have it so that on that page, we do not allow unnonced script tags or anything. But meanwhile, older, older pages are still not covered under the CSP yet. And we'll get to those as, as the, basically my, my requirement as the person that approves, uh, does reviews and approvals is that we will not work on those pages, make substantial changes to them until they have, uh, until they're admitting a content security policy header with the assumption that right now they're probably fine because, you know, the bug bounty program, if there were things in there, it would have probably been discovered by now. Hey, it's very funny what you say about the Mozilla Observatory because obviously it's a great tool to check your policy and, and yes, I mean, it's a game. You, you want to get to A plus as quickly as possible. So we've really seen like a lot of developers adopt a lot of the security controls that we want them to have on website because they actually have this 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 grading that they want to game. The fact that uh, CSP needs to be implemented on every page of uh, an application has also given us a little bit of, of, of trouble. And internally within Mozilla services, uh, what we do is we scan uh, as many pages of an application as possible. We spider a site uh, as part of our deployment logic and we will look for the presence of the CSP and other security headers on every page. We often find pages that are not necessarily handled by the devs that will be like 404 or 500 pages that are returned by the framework directly. And those will not have the headers because the handlers that you set may not set it on you know default pages returned by the framework. But if you're a JSON API, for example, and your content type is application JSON, all of the uh, endpoints that your application implements will return the good content type. But if you return a 404, then that would be an HTML page. And if that 404 is vulnerable to an injection, 
then suddenly you have a, an entry point to go steal cookies, even though you're an API endpoint. So that's why, I mean, two things that we really are trying to push is make sure that all of the endpoints and all of the pages, even the 404, the 500 once return the right content type and return a CSP. And also make sure that when we validate applications to go to prod, we can actually spider as much of the app as possible, which is easy for websites, much more difficult for API endpoints. But there's no good way today to say in your in your homepage, I want that CSP to apply to the entire domain the same way you can pin HSTH, so HPKP to an entire subdomain or a domain in all of the pages there. You can't really do that with a CSP. You have to serve it on every page. So a funny story to add here, since I've been working on CSP over the past, well, let's say three years, and we get bug reports and I have seen like web pages serving a CSP, for example, with a script source. And then there are 50 to 80 origins within that directive. And this is just a massive blow. They just say, okay, now we have CSP and now we need to add a whitelist like every single origin where we load scripts from. I don't know if that is the right approach, but it's kind of interesting to see uh, what people do. I, I definitely don't I don't like the idea like in some examples for setting up CSP I've seen people just they configure it uh, so it does go out with every page and it's a massive policy with like like 80 domains like you mentioned and I don't like that I much prefer each each page to have a specific maybe each class of page have a specific header I think that um, in the in the case our case for 404 is, as uh, as Julian pointed out that for the static files, you could have a really, really strict CSP. So you could say that your 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 internal 404 pages should not have anything running. I mean, you probably you might have some JavaScript on them, maybe, but you could just you probably if you have inline JavaScript on it, maybe you don't want to have that there. You just say don't execute anything. Um, actually, can you can do that, right? You could say this page can't doesn't execute any JavaScript by saying the script source is none. Right? Which is something we recommend on our API endpoints nowadays. It's just like if you're not going to run any content on your, on your endpoint, if you're just returning data, then just set content in the next script source none, and that's easier. And on the on the on the CSP quality part of things, uh, I mean there are tools out there that are useful. I think the Mozilla Observatory implements a number of of, of these quality controls, and and I know Google has a CSP evaluator. Um, at csp-evaluator.withgoogle.com that if you paste your CSP uh, inside of the, you know, that evaluator, it will automatically tell you how good it is. And I just tested with a policy here and it's telling me that my, my script SRC uh, is bad because host whitelists can frequently be bypassed. Consider using strict dynamic in combination with CSP nonces or ashes. Which actually is a great segue because I, I wanted to discuss a little bit strict dynamic because it's one of the new CSP3 feature that uh, isn't yet released. It will arrive in Firefox 52, I believe. But that's something that a few people are aware about and I've been told many times that it's helpful to implement CSP. So um, why don't we talk about this a little bit? Yes, certainly. But let me go back to that tooling first because that tooling is really important and even I've been working on CSP for a long time, but sometimes it's hard for myself to figure out uh, what resource type is now governed by what directive. And that is also due to the fact that things changed over time within CSP. For example, 
CSP3 um, defines a worker source directive, right? But earlier uh, it was governed, I think, by workers were governed by, by child source. And even in older versions, it was governed by script source. So that by itself already tells us it's complicated. And uh, to make things even worse in terms of that, that different browsers implement different parts of the spec. So for example, loading workers might fall into different directives. So it, 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 CSP in general, in my opinion, it gets a little bit too bloated. We should try to basically minimize it a little bit. And that tooling can really help a lot. For example, if you don't use any plugins or anything, set object source to none. That is already by itself a big plus, right? And then take it one step at a time. And those evaluation tools really help you in finding those little corner points where you're unsure about your CSP. Yeah, I think object source is a very good point. Um, I think this is something most people miss. Even, even I missed this, and I consider myself somebody who knows something about CSP. And because usually you start off your website with a default source directive that says, by default, these things are okay. And depending on how strict you are, you say, these sources are okay, and you default with the own domain or none. And most people start with their own domain because it's just more convenient. And that also means they don't have to have extra whitelists for images and everything. But if you start with the default source of self, that means you're also allowing plugins from self, which can be Flash plugins, Java plugins, etc. And they can be used for cross-site scripting and, and other nefarious things in um, many cases. So it's really important to, if you default to the own domain, to actually just disable plugins if you know you don't use them. And um, given recent developments, they have become less and less useful and not that required anymore. Um, I think the most typical thing people have been using um, Flash for recently was, for example, the clipboard thing, which is now feature in JavaScript. So I think GitHub uh, tackled and struggled with that as well. And I think they now have no flash at all, which is really a benefit. So strict dynamic? I think I think before we talk about strict dynamic, we should actually talk about the motivation and why people saw the need of strict dynamic. And um, it ties really into the sentence you've been quoting from the CSP evaluator saying that um, whitelists of hosts can be easily bypassed under certain circumstances. And um, I think one of the strongest motivators was, was a hacking challenge from um, Mario Heiderich and his team, which was called, oh shit, it's CSP, where you were supposed to find a cross-site scripting vulnerability and exploit it, even though there was a relatively strong CSP. And the way you could bypass it was by finding scripts hosted on popular CDNs that were in scope of the CSP. One typical example is, I think it's called ajax.googleapis.com, which hosts basically every big open source framework you can think of, including, for example, AngularJS, which brings its own special um, syntax, syntactic sugar to HTML, where you can basically do um, diff element and then an, an, an attribute called ng-click, and it basically behaves like an on-click, but, it's, but it isn't an on-click. That's why it's not prevented by CSP and can be used to execute scripts. This is somewhat mitigated by a sandbox in AngularJS itself. But AngularJS itself has a lot of versions. And all of those versions are on the CDN. So you just use a very old or potentially vulnerable version of AngularJS and inject that into the victim's web page. And then you can just go wild and do cross-site scripting. That is really tricky and really advanced. 
But another thing that you have to take care of is browser extensions and potentially vulnerabilities in them because as web browsers work, browser extensions are more important than what websites think or want to do. That's why browser extensions are not subject to CSP. So whenever you find a vulnerability in a browser extension to, for example, insert scripts or modify web pages, um, you can use that for cross-site scripting as well. For example, a JavaScript file that somehow uses eval or has some other cross-site scripting issue, and you just bring it into the web page that you want to attack because it's allowed by CSP, because it's from the browser. And that basically gave people the idea to say, hey, we maybe we just don't want to whitelist certain hosts, but actually say, we only want this specific script that carries the nonce. And if this script itself loads further scripts, that is probably also okay. And that is what strict dynamic is about. Given this key keyword in, in CSP, you basically say you want whitelisting based on nonces and nonces only. And every script that you run has a nonce, except for scripts inserted by other scripts. And then you have some sort of transitive trust. Right, so you basically trust the top-level script with a nonce, and everything that that top-level script does will be trusted as well. But if that top-level script loads a script that loads a script that does something horrible, then essentially you won't catch it in your CSP because you have trusted that entire chain. Um, so it's a trade-off, but it, yeah. That's right. So the benefit of strict dynamic is that you really have to write your nonce less often. That means in all cases where you actually um, put something straight into the HTML page. And if you don't use strict dynamic, you can still do something like a piece of JavaScript that actually looks for a valid nonce attribute in the current HTML and then insert that into the script tag that you want to create. And then you don't have to use strict dynamic. And then you still need some sort of vetting. In essence, it's the same, same thing. So another area that I wanted to kind of touch on, and maybe that goes back a little bit to the tooling for CSP, but the way we've asked developers to implement CSP is to start, of course, with a report-only policy that doesn't break their site. So you define your CSP and you put it in a content security policy report-only mode, and you get CSP report to a URI endpoint, so either on the same domain or in a different domain. And that has been very useful because obviously that lets you test things before you actually break your users. But it's had a few uh, downsides to it. And I, there are two that I can think of. And one is by design, the other one isn't. The, the one that's by design is if, you, if you're reporting to uh, your own domain to the same origin, you would actually get more data about the violation than if you report to a third party. And a lot of developers don't necessarily want to report to uh, the same origin because they want to use a hosted service like uh, reporturi.io or something like that where they can just you know send their traffic and get their reports. Uh, the other downside is, and, and this one is is uh, maybe a little easier to fix, is that the reports themselves are very different if you go from one browser to another. Um, not very different, but there are differences which makes them difficult to aggregate and to uh, filter through. And we've actually tried to collect CSP reports from uh, for some of our big, big sites and try to deduplicate them. And you end up having to write a whole lot of boilerplate to, to actually match what each browser is going to send you. And I, I'm not sure where that ever went, but I remember at some point, maybe a year or two ago, there was discussion about standardizing all of these report URI and all of these formats into something that all of the browsers would eventually implement the same way. Has that gone anywhere? Is it is it something that's being worked on? Or, or how should 
like developers pretty much deal with CSP reports? I know there have been some discussions and we've taken part in those, especially with uh, something called script sample, which Firefox sends to report endpoints that are on the very same origin and not on others. And Chrome does not send at all. And there were some ideas to unify this with some discussions that Chrome people did realize that it's really, really useful for websites, but they were also very, very careful about the security implications of sending script samples somewhere as part of a CSP report. So we've discussed this, and I think there is something happening in CSP3. I'm not entirely sure if it's in the working draft, but it's definitely on the agenda in terms of things we've been talking about. Christoph, do you remember if it's in the working draft? I'm not entirely sure, but what I can see is CSP reporting is hard by itself. And we have been talking to many companies, mostly in the Bay Area, but what they have reported is the same as you said, Julian, that they need a whole lot of boilerplate code to actually differentiate and filter out what are actual uh, reports and what are duplicates. And this is really hard to figure out whether it is actually caused by your web page and something you need to fix or something that is called by um, any uh, additional add-ons, plugins, whatever people are using. But yeah, back to your question, I'm not entirely sure if it's in the working draft. We would have to look that up. Well, so in the meantime, people can still uh, at least receive the reports and, uh, and, and pour through them. That's definitely helpful. Probably one of the most helpful tool in improving your CSP, so um, definitely is a place to start. There is one thing that I need to add, and that is back to that script sample. And we've heard from several different engineers that from other browsers, it's really hard to figure out uh, wh why that report was sent and that the script sample is so important. And a lot of developers actually use Firefox because of that, because Firefox sends you that small little snippet, I think it's 40 characters, that lets you pinpoint where the actual uh, CSP violation happened. Uh, that snippet is incredibly useful. I had a weird CSP report that was about the on focus in handler, which occurred nowhere in my code, but because of the sample, I was able to see that it was occurring inside jQuery. And I was actually able to determine that it wasn't important because it was just testing if on focus in existed. And uh, in testing it, it triggered a triggered the warning or triggered the error, but the error was caught. So it was, I didn't care. And so without it, you're essentially getting a report without knowing at all where the error occurred and <laughs> trying to reproduce it without data. That's fun. So, and actually we, we already started touching on this is tools that are useful for developers to get started and, and move to CSP. And, and I think really, at least in the, in the security community, we, we really try to push CSP in as many sites as possible and, and try to get people to understand that it will really help their site and the security of their product in the long run. But it's still been a little difficult because the tooling is uh, is so foreign to so many developers. So I, I know there has been a lot of work in improving this and the, the CSP tool, the Mozilla Observatory, all of these things help. Uh, Simon Bennett and the Zap uh, team have actually been working on a CSP generator to integrate in Zap. I think there is a contributor to the Zap project uh, who is writing a, an extension to it. And essentially you would just point, the goal is that you would point Zap to a site and it would spider your site and it would produce 
a sample policy for you. It might not be the perfect policy, but it will get you 80% of the way there and then you can fine tune it by hand. Um, so that's, I think, um, a good thing for developers to get started and a good way to increase adoption. I'm not sure if there are other tools that we should mention for developers to look at or... In, in general, there are quite a few tools that helps you generate a CSP whitelist. I think using using a tool like a proxy is, is beneficial as um, in contrast to a tool like a reverse proxy, which I've also seen, where you have the problem to switch between a learning mode and, uh, and a non-learning mode, because otherwise you basically whitelist possible attacks. But I think the main problem is that a proxy, wherever it sits, has um, potentially big problems enumerating all the important web pages and figuring out what is actually dynamic and what is changing, what needs to be nonced, and what is easily fixed by just adding a host name to a whitelist. But I think Christoph did some work on um, on, an, on a paper, right, to, to write a CSP generator. I think you probably know way more about this topic. I've read your paper, so I know you do. There are different approaches and a lot of researchers are actually very interested in that topic. So before we talk about what we did in the paper, what we did in an earlier version, and unfortunately it never made it into a product, but basically some kind of recording tool within the browser. So basically you switch on recording and then you navigate your web page and then at some point you hit stop recording and then the, the web browser spits out basically, okay, this is a CSP that might be usable for your web page. As you mentioned earlier, that is probably not the perfect CSP, but it might already provide a safe baseline that brings you like, let's say 90% of what you potentially need as a CSP on your web page. Um, and what we tried to do in the paper is we tried to collect information from different web pages. So web pages send hashes to a third party of scripts that have been seen on that web page. So the idea is that over time we collect a crowdsource-based approach that we collect so many hashes that we know what kind of scripts we can expect on certain uh, websites. And that worked really well for some web pages, but the problem is that a lot of web pages only send functionality within the scripts, but also data. And then in that case, the hash obviously would differ and we cannot really whitelist that script. So that was basically the end of that research. Is there any plan to, uh, to, to reboot some of that maybe in the, in the developer tools at some point? Yes. Um, well, I started doing it in my spare time basically, but it's still a lot of work and limited resources here and there, and that ma makes it hard. But still, I mean, I have code for that lying around. It still needs to be updated and eventually it, we will bring it out there. That sounds like a great call for motivated students and contributors who would like to help implement it in DevTools. <laughs> well, thanks guys. Um, and if you're on Firefox Dev Edition, you're actually on 52, so you can play with strict dynamic. And uh, if uh, you have feedback uh, and that you would like to give, you can uh, talk to all of us in the security IRC channel. So uh, thanks you very much for listening and uh, see you next time. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye.